Sensible Bobby, the show that is all about budgeting, smart spending, and saving. With Halloween just a few days off, Sensible Bobby's going to talk fear. That is, the top financial fears and how to scare them off. If financial chaos has you shivering and considering bankruptcy, today's Sensible University segment will encourage you as we chat with bankruptcy attorney and host of the Fresh Start for Life podcast, Don Golden. Don will help you decide if bankruptcy is the best option. Then, we'll dive into life after bankruptcy, how to recover, and live a better, less frightening financial life. But now, the competent custodian of cash, the siren of savings, the saint of the sawbuck, here is Sensible Bobby. Thanks, Scott. And happy Halloween to all. You know, so many of us feel fear throughout our lives when we think about money. Fear of not having enough and what that means. Fear when a bill comes that we can't pay. Fear when thinking about retirement. But fear can actually be a great motivator, or it can cripple us. The good news is we choose how we let fear impact our lives. Now, you guys know I'm a budgeting geek, so it should hardly surprise you to hear me say that a budget can take away your financial fear, or at least greatly reduce it. But the irony is that fear is what stops so many people from budgeting in the first place. Reality can be scary, and we often don't want to look at it, but if you can face reality and deal with it, you take away the power that fear has over you. And by the way, your financial life will get better for it. Let's talk about some common fears and see what we can do to combat them. The first one I always think of is fear of the unknown, because I'm so good at it. I could win Academy Awards for the horror films that have played out in my head over what-ifs. But I finally realized that my pattern was all wrong. I would ask the question, what if, and then try to put it out of my mind because I didn't want to deal with it. Then my mind would wonder to all the bad things that would happen as a result of the one thing I couldn't control. Like, what if my car broke down? I couldn't afford to fix it, but without it, I couldn't get to work. So I'd lose my job and then my apartment. Before you know it, I've got a mental image of myself living in a box, eating out of a dumpster over a car repair. So I finally changed the pattern and followed through in thinking about the question. What if my car broke down? How much would I need to fix it? How would I get that money? Not a lot of options for me in the moment because I had no savings. So how long would it take me to save enough where I would feel confident in covering the cost of a car repair? Now I'm thinking the only way to answer that question is to create a budget, because I have no idea where my money is going each month, so how can I possibly know what's available to save? And I've been telling myself all these years that there's no money to save, but really, I don't know if that's true. And guess what? Now it's just a math problem I need to solve, and I'm curious. So I create a budget, find out what I can save, and now the idea of a car repair is nowhere near as daunting. I'm confident I can handle it. And the fear is gone. Now I'm kicking myself for all the time I spent fearing something I can't control when a little planning got me ready to deal with it. So the moral of this story is, if you're afraid of something, think it through. What could happen? And what could you do to combat it? Deal with it, stop it, fix it, whatever. 
Use that brainstorm to create a plan. It's like fire drills. It's a practice plan designed to get you to safety as quickly as possible in a situation you can't control. Looking at it that way certainly helps me sleep better at night. Plus, an emergency situation is a really bad time to try and think calmly and rationally. So planning ahead when you can be calm and rational will greatly benefit you in the moment of an emergency, even if you don't sit around worrying about it all the time. What are some other common fears? Right now, according to a survey from WalletHub, almost 180 million Americans are fearful of a recession. Let's deal with this once and for all. A recession is going to happen. They happen in cycles. It's not a new phenomenon. It will happen at some point. Nobody knows when. But here's the question. What does that mean to you? What are you really afraid of? Do you have investments that might tank? Talk to your financial advisor about that one, but I'll just say that the S&P 500 index has gone up 300% since the Great Recession in 2008. So even if your investments do tank, they'll probably bounce back. For those of us who don't have a lot of money invested, we may worry about being laid off from our job. I'm here to tell you that is a very real concern every day you work at a job, not just during a recession. So play it out. What happens if you lose your job? Do you have enough savings to tide you over while you're looking for a new job? Many personal finance experts suggest saving three to six months worth of expenses. Notice I said expenses, not income. This means your goal is to save enough that you could survive a layoff, even if that meant having to give up Netflix and eating out for a while. Keeping the lights on and a roof over your head is going to be much more important at that point. How much is that for you? And how fast can you save it? Consider this. If you're laid off, you will be able to collect unemployment. So that will help a bit. But don't depend solely on it because it's not enough. What else could you do? Cash out a 401k? Not what you would want to do by any means. But if it's between that and the street, you do what you have to do. You could sell things, borrow money from a family member, drive for Uber or deliver pizzas to pay the necessities until you find the next full-time job. The point is, if you think this through now and start planning for it, you may not need to cash out that 401k because you're prepared. Now, you don't have to fear a recession that may not come for a long time. And when it does, you don't have to worry about survival. So while you're brainstorming, write it down. Do some math and turn this into a plan you can use if, God forbid, you should ever need to. That's budgeting. Let's get back to the survey. 44% said medical bills are their biggest fear. Medical insurance helps with this, of course, but we've all heard nightmare stories about huge bills regardless of insurance. So what to do? The HSA has been a huge help for me. I save as much as I can in my health savings account, and it has bailed out our family more times than I can count. The money goes in tax-free and, when used for medical expenses, comes out tax-free. But there is a limit to how much you can save, and sometimes it's not enough. So the other thing you can do is educate yourself about insurance, alternatives, negotiating bills, and how to shop around for cheaper services and prescriptions. Scott Heiser wrote a book called Healthcare is Making Me Sick, and if you want to get educated and save on medical costs, I highly suggest you getting his book. It is a treasure trove of useful information that can save you a ton. He's going to be my guest on the November 11th episode, so be sure to come back for that. 
Now let's look at the whole list according to the Wallet Hub survey of people's biggest financial fears and see if we can find some peace. At the top of the list, an unplanned emergency, which we've already discussed as it relates to car and medical issues. The best way to find peace here is to save money. I guarantee you an emergency of some sort is coming eventually. You don't know when, where, or what, but if you start planning today, you'll be more prepared than you were yesterday. The second biggest fear is not having enough retirement savings. This is such a big issue because there are so many variables. But again, we're fearful because we don't have a plan. And the good news is, these days, you don't have to have a lot of money in order to get help in this department. In fact, you don't need any money. There are resources you can use and people that will help. Nick Stoller is the founder of MyPerfectFinancialAdvisor.com, which is a free matchmaking service that helps you find the right person to help you work through all of this and create your retirement plan, even if you have no money today. So if you're worried about retirement, start working on a plan today and take that fear away. Nick's going to be my guest in December, so check back for that. In the meantime, he's also got a great book called The Truth Shall Set Your Wallet Free. Also on the list of fears is job loss and loss of health insurance, which we've already covered. So here are the last two that round out the list, fraud and poor credit. Let's talk about poor credit first. The fear isn't as much about the credit score, but what that means, right? Because there are only two ways your credit will be poor. Either you've missed payments or defaulted, or you're just not using credit enough to give you a good score. I wouldn't worry if you're just not using it enough. This means you don't need to rely on borrowing money, and that's a good thing. Keep building your savings and living below your means, and you'll be okay. If you're fearful about finances, you've got bigger problems than your credit score. So dig a bit deeper and figure out what you're really afraid of and what you can do about it. I think we put way too much focus on the credit score, and people are confused. I've actually known people who were carrying a balance on their credit card rather than paying it off monthly, even though they had the money, because they believed that their credit score would only get better if they carried a balance. That's certainly not true. And even if it was, is it worth paying the interest just to get a better credit score? That's like saying I'm much more interested in the rewards I can get with a credit card rather than the interest they'll be charging me for that privilege. The world is full of great marketers who want us to spend money on their shiny object. They will focus on whatever benefits pique your interest. You must focus on what's really important and make sure you have all the information so you can make an informed decision as a consumer. As for fraud, this one really burns me. There are so many fraudsters out there and it's easy to get taken. The worst are the IRS and Social Security scams. Since every one of us has ties to both of these institutions, it's easy to buy into the fact that they would be contacting us for something, not like Bank of America supposedly calling you when you've never had a bank account with them. But here's the thing. The IRS and Social Security will never call you. We should be so lucky that someone from those organizations would actually call us as opposed to us having to sit on hold for up to two hours. And I'm not exaggerating. This has actually happened to me. But no, they are not going to call you. So anytime you get a phone call from someone claiming to be from the IRS or Social Security, hang up. It's that simple. If you have issues that you're working on with them and you're concerned about it, call them and make sure to use a number found on your paperwork or through their website 
not a number some random guy on the phone gave you. As for other fraudsters, it's basically the same, in my opinion, across the board. If anyone calls and says I'm in default or they need my account info for some reason, I decline to provide it and say I will call the company directly. This is the best way I know to keep from being taken. They are preying on your fear, but they can't get you if you don't let them. Simply hanging up is the easiest way to avoid a scam. Now, if they're offering you some great opportunity, again, I wouldn't entertain this on the phone. If it sounds good to you, research it on your own after you hang up on them. And if it's legitimate, go for it. But if you stay on the phone with them, they can be very persuasive. And the next thing you know, you've signed up for something you really don't understand. Or even worse, you've given them access to your bank account or other personal information, sometimes without even realizing it. Pressure does strange things to people. So protect yourself by being strong enough to stand up for yourself. Do not be intimidated into purchasing or providing information. You have to advocate for yourself. Another big fear that many of us have, and unfortunately many of us face, is bankruptcy. So how do we decide if it's our best option and what can we expect? Plus, what happens afterwards? Our guest professor is here to answer all those questions. Okay, class, Sensible University is now in session. Attorney Don Golden is board certified in consumer bankruptcy by the American Board of Certification. Over the last 22 years, he has helped over 4,000 families discharge more than $80 million in debt and get a fresh start. But over the last few years, he sensed that he was being called to do more, going beyond helping people discharge debt and helping them rebuild their financial lives after bankruptcy. He founded Fresh Start for Life and the Fresh Start for Life podcast to help people get out of debt and start living the financial life of their dreams. Don, thanks for being our guest professor today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate being here. You know, I was reading some statistics from the American Bankruptcy Institute the other day, and it says that bankruptcies are up 3% year over year, and the amount is now $14 trillion, which is actually a trillion higher than during the 2008 financial crisis. Does that statistic surprise you? Well, I think what you're talking about is the amount of consumer debt that's outstanding right now. Um, and, And to be honest with you, it surprises me in a way and it doesn't surprise me in another way. The reason why I am not that surprised by that number is that student loan debt has just gotten out of control since 2008. And that represents about 10% or so of that total consumer debt. Another large portion of it are mortgages. And since the recovery, you know, I'm sure it's this way in California, like it is here in Florida, but you know, we had a strong real estate recovery. So now, you know, a lot of people have bought homes again, and there's a lot of mortgages now. So I'm not surprised at all to see that the level of debt has gotten that high again. And the other thing that's happened is, is that overall consumer lending has increased because the uh, standards have gotten a little bit lower again. It's easier for people to get debt again now. Whereas after the crisis in 2008, things got really tight and it got difficult and it took a little while for people to be able to get credit again and for banks to start approving. But that changed, you know, as time went on, the banks started loosening up the standards and now it's pretty easy to get a mortgage again and it's pretty easy to get a credit card again. And it's very easy to get student loan debt now. So I'm not surprised at all to see that the debt's risen to that level. Do you think that that means that there will be more bankruptcies to follow? There's no question. So right around 2010, bankruptcy filings, or at least for us in our jurisdiction here in Tampa, we hit a peak and it's gone down every single year since 2010. 
bankruptcy filings have dropped. I mean, and I think this is going to be our first year where we've actually started going up again. We're in a really busy bankruptcy market here in Tampa. And to see that number of years of decline, it's just unheard of here. We never have been more than two years of decline. And then things usually turn around, you know, the number of filings start going up. So it was bound to happen sooner or later. The economy has had a very strong recovery and it's lasted a long time. And I'm not surprised at all to see the numbers start creeping up again. Bankruptcy is a very serious financial decision and one that we would all like to avoid if we could. But there are times when it is the best option. But there's so many people who consider bankruptcy because they feel desperate and sometimes can't really think clear enough to consider other options that might be out there. So could you give us some perspective on what kinds of situations do and do not actually warrant a bankruptcy filing? Well, that's tough. One of the things that really breaks my heart is when people use all of their life savings that they've put into retirement and everything like that to service debt that they really can't afford to pay. I've seen this time and time again over my career where people hang on for as long as they can. Because, you know, to be honest with you, I think most people don't want to file and they do everything they can to avoid it. So, you know, people put it off and put it off and put it off when really the handwriting's been on the wall for a long time. And people will absolutely go through their entire savings in order to try to avoid bankruptcy. And that just breaks my heart because, you know, in most places, retirement income is an exempt asset, which means if you file bankruptcy, you get to keep it. And so it just really hurts me to see people spending all their money that they've put away for their future you know, to try to service debt that they really can't afford. But there certainly are circumstances where people could, you know, buckle down and do a budget and things like that and and maybe try to work their way out of it. But in my experience, that's kind of rare. I think that those people are fewer, you know, there's not as many of those people that really could buckle down and, and work their way out of it than there are people that really pretty much do need to file. And certainly one of the key things is, If you get sued by a creditor, if you fall behind on a debt and you get sued, it's probably time to consider bankruptcy or at least talking to a lawyer to see what your options are. At that point, wage garnishments probably coming up shortly, you know, after a lawsuit, if they get a judgment. And that's just devastating to people to have their wages garnished. So that's certainly some time where I would definitely consider strongly bankruptcy. Basically, most people make the minimum payments on their credit card debt and they think that they're getting by okay, but they're not really getting the balances down at all. And that's just delaying the inevitable, in my opinion. If you're just making the minimums and you have no extra money to put towards, you know, paying down principal, you're never going to work your way out of debt. So if you find yourself in that situation where you just have absolutely nothing left to pay anything extra on the credit cards, to pay more than the minimums and reduce those balances, then it probably is time to consider bankruptcy. Yeah, that's a very good point. And when you were talking about the different considerations and, you know, going through all your life savings before you file for bankruptcy, it it made me start thinking that that would be a a really good time to be able to go to someone and say, look at my situation and tell me if I should continue to try to work this out myself or if I should file for bankruptcy. Do those kind of services exist where you can go to somebody to get that kind of, you know, an, an evaluation? Absolutely. So I'm a proponent of consumer credit counseling. I think that the nonprofit consumer credit counseling companies are generally reputable and you can trust them and they will tell you if they can help you with a debt management plan or something like that to help reduce the payments you're making on the credit cards. And then other times they're going to just tell you, I'm sorry, but you know, there's really nothing that we can do for you. You need to consider bankruptcy as an option. And that's definitely a place to go. And I also think that an honest bankruptcy lawyer could evaluate your situation as well and tell you whether or not they think that bankruptcy is the best option. 
But I definitely recommend, you know, if you're not ready to see a lawyer yet, I would definitely recommend nonprofit consumer credit counseling agencies. Now, I was looking on your website and I was interested to find that you guys also have some debt management services or debt pay down services. I don't want to say debt consolidation because that's gotten a bad rap, but I think that that's part of it too. How do your services on debt consolidation or debt payoff differ from the kind of things that we see on TV that you hear a lot about, you know, people going into these programs thinking that this company is going to take care of all your debt problems and a lot of times they don't do what they promise and they've charged you all this money for things you right. can do yourself and they just never do it. Yeah. So we don't do that kind of thing at all, really. We don't help negotiate credit cards and stuff until there's a lawsuit filed. Once there's a lawsuit filed and there's an attorney on the other end of the case, you know, because the bank is represented by an attorney now and they file the lawsuit, we will help people try to negotiate those. If somebody's not a good bankruptcy candidate, or they just don't want to file, but they have been sued, we will help them try to negotiate a payment plan or some sort of settlement with the credit card company um, because it's a lawsuit now and you really don't want to go that alone. If you've been sued, that's not something you want to try to take care of on your own. It's not something that consumer credit counseling or any company like that can help you with. You really kind of do need a lawyer. And those are the kind of debt settlement type things that we really do here. It's after a lawsuit's filed and that's really it for us. Now, there are different types of bankruptcy filings, and sometimes people are unclear as to which are the best options for them. So can you explain a little bit about the difference between Chapter 7, 11, 13, and anything else that might be out there and how you go about choosing the best option? Okay, definitely. So there's basically two options for consumers, um, for everyday people. There's Chapter 7 and Chapter 13. Chapter 7 is is a straight liquidation bankruptcy where you list all of your debt, you list all of your assets, your unsecured debt, which are mainly credit cards, medical bills, if you had a deficiency on a repossession or foreclosure, those kinds of debts are generally dischargeable completely in a Chapter 7. You get to keep certain assets when you file. They're called your exemptions. And the exemptions are going to vary state by state. In Florida, where I practice, you get to keep unlimited equity in your home, $1,000 of equity in an automobile, thousand dollars of personal property and unlimited equity in 401ks, IRAs, or pension plans. So the truth of the matter is, is that although it doesn't sound like much, most people do fall generally within the allowed exemptions. And you probably will get to keep most of your assets when you file chapter seven. So that's the first kind. The first kind is chapter seven, which is the quickest, the easiest. It only takes 90 days from the time it's filed to the time of the discharge. And that's the one that's most attractive to people. But if they don't qualify for a chapter seven because they make too much money, there is an income kind of you know, analysis that has to go into whether or not you can do a chapter seven. If you don't qualify because of your income or because you have assets that you just don't want to lose in the chapter seven, then chapter 13 is going to be the next best option for you. Chapter 13 is a repayment plan where you make payments for a period of three to five years and you'll pay back a portion of that unsecured debt. And that amount you have to pay back is kind of a formula that's going to be determined by the bankruptcy code. And a bankruptcy attorney can certainly help do that calculation. It's not an easy calculation. It's not the kind of bankruptcy I would recommend anybody try to do on their own. But it is good. It is better than a lot of those debt management plans that you were talking about before that make all these promises. You know, I I hear these ads on TV that if you have $10,000 or more of credit card debt, then you have the right 
to settle your debt for pennies on the dollar or whatever. And that's just flat out not true. You know, in chapter 13, you can absolutely settle debt for pennies on the dollar. It's just going to be dependent on how much you make and how much you have left over each month that you can afford to pay to unsecured creditors. So chapter 13 is more of a reorganization. Chapter 7 is a liquidation. Chapter 13 is take three to five years to complete, but so do most debt management plans. Most debt management plans are three to five years as well. So both good options and both available to consumers. Now, chapter 11s are different. Chapter 11s are very expensive as far as attorney's fees and costs and things like that. And those are generally done by businesses. So businesses will reorganize and do a chapter 11 case or really high income debtors that have a lot of debt. There's debt limits in chapter 13. So if you have too much debt, say like a million dollars in unsecured debt, then you're not going to be eligible to do a chapter 13. You You would have to do a chapter 11, but those are very rare. Individual chapter 11s are very rare. So usually for most everyday people, chapter 7 or chapter 13 is going to be the option. Is there a difference since the chapter 13 is more of a reorganization? Does that Mm -hmm. make a difference in how it affects your credit? Well, it's hard to say. It stays on the credit report a little less time. My understanding is it stays on the credit report for seven years instead of 10. Chapter 7s will stay on the credit report for seven. But it takes longer to recover, in my opinion, from a chapter 13 than it does a chapter seven because of the fact that you're in and out of a chapter seven so fast. So because the case is discharged and you're out of the bankruptcy in 90 days, you can start recovering much quicker from a chapter seven than you can a chapter 13, in my opinion. Most mortgage companies won't give a mortgage until two years approximately after the discharge has been entered. So in chapter seven, that's only 90 days. In chapter 13, it's going to be three to five years plus two years. You see, so it definitely takes you longer to get reestablished when you're doing a chapter 13 than in a chapter seven. You would like to think that it would be better for you, you know, because it is you know, the creditors are getting something usually in chapter 13. So you'd like to see a better benefit to the debtor, but really truly there's not a huge benefit to the credit for chapter 13 as opposed to chapter seven. We were talking about student loan debt a few minutes ago. And, you know, a lot of us now have heard that if you file bankruptcy, all of your debt is going to disappear, but the student loan debt is going to remain. Mm -hmm. However, I was reading on your website and it looks like that may not necessarily always be the case. Can you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. So, It is very difficult. Let me be clear on this. It is very difficult to discharge student loan debt, but there is a standard and it's a standard. It's called undue hardship. So if you can prove that repaying the student loan debt would be an undue hardship, then your debt is technically dischargeable in bankruptcy. But in order to do that, you have to actually file a lawsuit inside of the bankruptcy case against the mortgage servicer or against the Department of Education. It just depends on where the loan is being held right now. Um, You'd file a lawsuit against them and you'd have to lay out why it's an undue hardship. The courts have made it really difficult. It's a very difficult standard to meet. The way the standard is set up right now, based on the way the courts have kind of reviewed it, you basically would have to be disabled, really, and not able to work anymore, you know, for the most part, in order to meet the definition of undue hardship, which is hard for a lot of people to believe because most people that come see me that have, you know, they're struggling with student loan debt, they say, yeah, it's hard and do hardship. I can't, I can't afford to pay this and still eat, you know, and that may be true, but the courts don't really look at it the same way. It's, it's very difficult. There is a provision in the code that allows for discharge, but you have to prove this undue hardship, which is a very high standard and very difficult to meet. 
Now, anything that is charged off during a bankruptcy, I know you're not a tax person, but I'm going to ask you this question anyway, just to see if you have met with this and have any info on it. Absolutely. Because I've I've read that if some of your debt is charged off, it can actually be looked at as income and you can be taxed on it. Do you know anything about that? Yes, absolutely. There's a difference between charged off and discharged. So charge off is, you know, what the banks do when they can't collect the debt. But discharge means it's not legally, you know, you can't legally collect it anymore. It's discharged. The debtor doesn't owe that money anymore. And the um, the IRS does have an exception for insolvency. So if you're insolvent at the time that the debt was either discharged or charged off, then it's not taxable. So when you file bankruptcy, there's a presumption of insolvency. And so you meet that definition, according to what I've learned from tax people, you meet the definition of insolvency and therefore whatever's discharged in the bankruptcy is not taxable. Okay. And so that would probably be another good reason to go that route as opposed to these debt consolidation companies, because in that case, then it could be taxable, right? Correct. Absolutely. If they are able actually to save you money. But what happens with a lot of these debt consolidation companies is, is that, you know, they'll collect money from you and they won't make payments on everything. You know, they're only making payments until they get enough money to settle one, you know, but not everybody's getting paid every month is the way most of those work. And what I, unfortunately, what I've seen is, is a lot of times the consumer will end up getting sued because, you know, Citibank doesn't want to wait six, seven months to get any money. You know, they, they get impatient and they decide to file a lawsuit. So that's one of the problems with those debt consolidation companies. Debt management's more what consumer credit counseling can do with you. And they typically do make payments on all the debt. They're just trying to reduce the interest and, and reduce the payments for you. So now, are there any other things that are common that you see that people think are going to happen or not happen in bankruptcy and they are mistaken about? I mean, like other things that can't be charged off that they think might be or... Most unsecured debt's dischargeable. There's certain exceptions, like certain IRS debt's not dischargeable in bankruptcy, but some of it actually is. And people do find that hard to believe. Some people just assume that they're, you know, anything that they owe the IRS would not be dischargeable. And sometimes we can discharge on IRS debt if certain criteria is met. And that really takes it you know, a lot of detailed analysis to determine whether or not it's dischargeable. So some people are surprised in a good way that they're able to discharge some IRS debt. As far as negatives go, you know, to be honest with you, the only negative that I can see that's happened lately is in chapter 13 now, most chapter 13 trustees are going to want to collect the debtor's tax return every single year and use that money to put towards their debt. And that never used to happen, you know, five, six years ago. So that's different now. And some people are a little surprised to find out that they're going to have to give up their tax returns every year. That's only in a chapter 13, though, not in a chapter seven, because a chapter seven is over with, you know, quickly. But in a chapter 13, most trustees are going to take that tax refund every year and put it towards the debt. And sometimes that is surprising to people. But it's nothing that can't be, you know, worked out with some good planning. You know, you just got to adjust your, you know, your withholdings and things like that to avoid a big tax refund that would end up going to your creditors anyway. That's the one thing that I can think of real quick off the top of my head that does surprise people. Let's talk about judgments, because if somebody has a judgment against them, which could include a lien on their property, does a bankruptcy remove that lien? Okay. This is a difficult question. And the reason why it's difficult is because although bankruptcy is a federal statute, there's a lot of state nuances. There's a lot of state law that goes into it as well. So in Florida, a judgment cannot be a lien on somebody's home. It just can't happen. So in Florida, well, actually in any state, bankruptcy will void a judgment. But if a judgment has been re-recorded in a certain way to become a lien on a home, then the bankruptcy does never, it never discharges liens. 
So the bankruptcy can discharge the underlying debt, but it will never discharge a lien. But in Florida, we don't really have that issue because judgments can't become liens on homestead. But I know in a lot of other states, they can be. Now, the bankruptcy code does have a provision that if your home is exempt, let's say you're in California and you have a $10,000 homestead exemption. So meaning that you, you can exempt up to $10,000 of equity in your home. And I don't know what that, I don't know what California's homestead exemption is, but I'm just using this for an example. Sure. If you have less than $10,000 of equity in the home, that home is going to be an exempt asset. And there's a provision of the bankruptcy code that will allow the debtor's attorney to go in and file a motion to avoid a judgment lien to basically take care of that lien because really there's nothing for it to attach to except for an exempt asset. And so it can be resolved that way, but it does take you know an extra step typically by the bankruptcy lawyer. And so do bankruptcy lawyers always check on that kind of thing before? Is that part of the bankruptcy filing? That is going to vary by the attorney. So a lot like we have a provision in our retainer agreement that does, it's not part of our flat fee basically to avoid the judgment lien if we need to do that. But the debtors wear that right up front, you know, and they know that we do the search for sure. And we tell them that we think there could be an issue here, but that it's really rare in Florida. Like I said, because judgments can't be uh, liens on homestead. The problem comes in with the title companies though. Like, even though the judgment can't be a lien, the title companies don't always, you know, they're over cautious and they're going to tell debtors sometimes, hey, your attorney should have done a motion to avoid this when really we didn't need to do it, but the title company wants it so that they can write title insurance. You know, they're more comfortable writing the title insurance. So sometimes we do have to go back and, re- and do that stuff, even though technically it wasn't really a lien. So we do offer the service up front, but a lot of debtors don't want to do that right away until they need it. How would a person find out, I mean, except for the bankruptcy lawyer going through that process, how would a person find out if there is a lien on their property? Most liens are going to show up on your credit report. So there's different sections of the credit report. And one of the sections is called the public record section. That is updated by third parties that do this research for the credit reporting bureaus. And that's a good place to find a lien. A lot of times if there's a judgment lien, it's going to show up on your credit report. But most states have really good public record searching online now. And that's another option. It's just a lot of consumers aren't savvy enough really to know how to do that. It's kind of tough for a consumer to do it. But the first place I would look is my credit report. And then if you're still unsure, or you, you know, you still have questions, I would go ahead and see if I could figure out the online public record search for your state and see if you can find it that way. If you can't do that, if you're still unsure, then you might want to consult an attorney, you know, just to see whether bankruptcy is an option at the same time, maybe to ask them to do the search for you. They may charge you a little bit of money, but I can't imagine it's going to be more than $100 or so, you know, for a service like that. And that's probably worth doing if you have questions about that. So now let's talk about some of the pros and cons of bankruptcy. Obviously, the pros are going to be, you know, that you're getting rid of this debt that you're underwater on and the cons are going to be hits against your credit. But beyond that, what are some of the other pros and cons that people may not think about? Well, I want to talk real quick about the hit against the credit. So most of the time, by the time somebody's considering bankruptcy, their credit's not in very good shape anyway. You know, their debt to income ratio is real bad. They've probably got some delinquencies and their credit score is probably not very good. This is one of the other things that does surprise people sometimes is, is that sometimes just filing bankruptcy by itself will increase your credit score. And I know that's really hard to believe, but it's absolutely true. If your credit is really bad, 
and you get a discharge of your debt, you've totally flip-flopped your debt to income ratio. And the banks also know that you can't file another chapter seven again, say if you did a chapter seven for at least eight years. So they know they've got eight more years to collect against you, you know, if you don't pay. So you're a pretty good credit risk and your credit score usually will go up a little bit. Now it's still not going to be good. It's going to take you time to get that credit score up. But this is another thing that does surprise people is usually it only takes 12 to 24 months and you can have a 700 to 800 credit score, you know, after a bankruptcy, you know, the hit on the credit isn't as bad as a lot of people think. Now, if you have really good credit and you've made all your payments, but you're just struggling in, you know, to keep up with everything, you, you're keeping up with everything, but you're borrowing from one to pay another and you're doing some things like that, your credit score might be pretty good. In that case, your credit definitely will drop when you file bankruptcy. But for most people that I see, their credit actually starts going up almost right away when they file. You know, one of my big things right now is I really want to see people start saving for retirement. You know, debt is one of the big reasons why people delay saving for retirement. So to me, it's a plus to be able to discharge your debt and start saving for retirement so that, you know, someday you're going to be able to actually retire. Because I just see so many people putting that off now. Absolutely. And and that makes so much sense. I mean, you, it's a really great way to get a fresh start, which is, right. you know, ironically, the name of your podcast, the Fresh Start for Life podcast, yeah. because you, you know, have been doing this so long, you kind of wanted to give your clients something beyond the bankruptcy. Before we get into that, though, I wanted to ask you, because I read this on your website, and it was so sad to see. And what you said was that there are some people who come to you more than once for bankruptcy. How common is this? It's not real common, but it definitely happens. You know, I've, I've been doing this 22 years and I've had my own practice since 2002. So 17 of those years I've been on my own. So over that 17 year period of time, I've definitely seen clients more than once. Now, the most common time it happens is if they're in a chapter 13 And for whatever reason, they can't finish the 13 because they can't afford to make the payments or something like that. And they they don't actually get a discharge. And then they come back in a month or two and say, hey, I'm ready to give this another chance, you know, and we refile a new case. So that's one way that we can see repeat business. But, you know, the ones that really make me sad are the ones that have gotten a discharge usually in a chapter seven. And then eight years later, they come back and they're like, Don, I'm, I'm in trouble again. You know, and that, that really hurts me, you know, to the core because we want people to, you know, get through bankruptcy, get a fresh start and live a better financial life. And it just pains me to think that they're going to have to struggle again and, you know, go through this whole process again. And, you know, I, I just hate to see it. So that's, you know, why I started my new business, which is called Fresh Start for Life. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the reasons that I was so taken by it when I read about that is because I had just been thinking about that before I came across your information on Fresh Start for Life. Bankruptcy is such a devastating thing to people. And it does mean that they are in this financial chaos in their lives. And to discharge it is one thing, but then how to move on after that. And so I had just been thinking, you know, it should almost be a requirement that if you're going to file bankruptcy, you have to go through some sort of program that helps you learn how to get on track to never let your, or to do everything in your power anyway, to never put yourself in that kind of financial chaotic position again. And I think that that is the goal of your podcast and your courses, right? Correct. There is a requirement. So when the the bankruptcy law was was amended in October 2005, and when it was amended, Congress added a provision that requires people to get counseling at two points, one before 
before they filed, they have to get a credit counseling certificate that said they went through credit counseling. Not necessarily that they did a debt management plan, but they consulted with a credit counseling company. Now, what that's turned into really isn't where they're really trying to put people on a debt management plan. Really, it's turned into just you know, going through the motions and, and having a program online that they have to listen to and go through. It takes about 40 minutes to an hour and they get a certificate that allows them to file bankruptcy. To be honest with you, I'm very cynical about the credit card industry and stuff. And, and I, the credit card industry didn't really want people to necessarily go through credit counseling. They just wanted to make it very difficult for them to file bankruptcy. So they lobbied Congress to add this provision. So people do have to consult with a credit counseling agency of some sort before filing and get a certificate. And then they have to do a, it's called a debtor education class after they file, but before their case is discharged. But there again, it's really nothing substantive so much as just a hurdle, you know, so they have to spend some time online listening to some information. But, you know, as far as having actionable steps and things like that, I've never heard a client say, oh, that was really great information. I'm going to be able to utilize that. You know, it's just a hurdle that they have to go through to get their discharge. So what I'm trying to do is create a program that will really help people rebuild their credit after their bankruptcy. And then more importantly to me, it's that they learn how to manage their money and not find themselves in this situation again down the road. Right. And I think if I heard correctly on one of your podcasts, this is actually a service that you provide as part of your bankruptcy services to your clients. Correct. Okay. Correct. I, my clients get these courses for free. So tell us a little bit about what these courses entail. Yeah. So the first course is uh, called Rebuild Your Credit, Rebuild Your Life. And it's a course that teaches you how to rebuild your credit to about 720 and as little as 12 to 24 months. It's pretty simple. There's only like five, six steps to the program. It's simple, but you know, it takes discipline and you have to know how to do it. You know, you have to know what you need to do. So that's the first course. And the second course isn't quite done yet. This brand new business, I just launched it in like March. The first course is out and that I'm giving to my clients already. And I've had several clients go through it. They're happy. I'm getting some good reviews on the rebuilding the credit course. The budget course I'm still working on, to be honest with you. That's going to be more about how to do a budget, you know, how to manage your money and things like that and what you need to have for an emergency fund and, you know, just little things like that, that I need, I think consumers need to know so that when they have something come up, they don't have to go back into debt to cover it. That's so important. And I'm so glad to hear that you're doing that because I think that's a really great thing, not only for people that, you know, are in or going through bankruptcy, but people that are just struggling and haven't gotten to the point of bankruptcy, maybe that can help them stay out of it. And I think that it's available even if you're not a bankruptcy client. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. I mean, people can go to freshstartforlife.com and they can get the courses there. The rebuilding credit course is really more designed for people that have filed bankruptcy. There's most of the modules, you know, kind of assume that you filed bankruptcy. So all the information won't work for somebody that hasn't been through bankruptcy, but they don't have to have filed bankruptcy with me. If somebody's filed bankruptcy and they've gotten a discharge and, you know, they're interested in the course, you know, that would be helpful to them. But for somebody that hasn't filed bankruptcy, the information in that course probably would not be that useful. But the budget course would definitely, you know, once I get that done, that's going to be useful for anybody. Awesome. I can't wait to hear more about that. And I'm loving your podcast. I really encourage anybody who has questions about bankruptcy or just, you know, about money topics in general. Your podcast has been great for that. It's called Fresh Start for Life. And I think it's available on iTunes and Google Play and all those great places, right? Yeah, absolutely. All the normal podcatchers or whatever you call it. I don't even know what the terminology is, but wherever you right. can listen to a podcast, <laughs> usually you can find it. Awesome. Okay. Freshstartforlife.com is the website. And then why don't you give your other website as well? Because I found a lot of great information on your bankruptcy website. 
Okay, thank you. It's brandonlawyer.com, B-R-A-N-D-O-N-L-A-W-Y-E-R.com. That's my law firm website. And um, yeah, you can get a lot of information about the different types of bankruptcies and, and start kind of trying to figure out for yourself if bankruptcy is a good option. Or, you know, I have written a book. I have two books on bankruptcy as well. The first one's called Bankruptcy in Florida, Your Freedom and Your Future. And the second one is called Getting a Fresh Start for Life, A Plan for Financial Happiness. And you can request copies of those as well on my website. Do you practice outside of Florida? No, I don't. Okay, but you have a network, I assume. Absolutely. I have good friends all over the country. And I, I know who the good bankruptcy lawyers are anywhere. So if somebody is considering bankruptcy, they should get in touch with you. And if you can't help them, you can certainly direct them to someone who can. Definitely. Don, thank you so much for being our guest professor today. We really appreciate your time and all the great information you've shared with us. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Today's guest professor has been Don Golden, bankruptcy attorney and host of the Fresh Start for Life podcast. To find out more about how Don can help you, click on freshstartforlife.com. I hope that interview gave you a little solace if you're facing the possibility of bankruptcy. We often look at bankruptcy as this horrible thing that means the end of our financial lives and a devastating event. I'm not saying it's fun, but it's actually a solution to a financial mess, and it provides the opportunity for a fresh start to your financial life. So if you can look at it that way and get past the shame and blame, it could be a blessing. Your situation today is your situation. You have to deal with it in the best possible way, given the resources you have, and then move on. So now, let's move on. If you've just finished a bankruptcy, you may have a clean slate, no debt. What a feeling. But how do you make sure you don't ever get back there again? Now is the time to create a spending plan and budget and stick to it. It's going to help safeguard you against payments you can't make and help you reach the financial goals you couldn't even think about when you were saddled with all that debt. Of course, the first thing you'll need to do is create a financial picture. You've heard me talk about this before. It's simply a list of all your monthly bills and expenses, annual bills and expenses broken down into monthly payments, and monthly income. Add up all your expenses and subtract that total from your income. Do you have any money left over? If not, then you need to cut expenses or find a way to increase your income. Otherwise, you're going right back into debt. If you do have money left over, now it's time to give that money a job. So let's talk about why you had to file bankruptcy in the first place. Now, I realize I started this discussion by saying, let's move on. And now it seems like I'm going back. But part of moving on is learning from your mistakes. Otherwise, you're destined to repeat them. So my philosophy is look back to help you move forward. Don't look back just to beat yourself up. That doesn't do any good. But you are going to have to look at your past long enough to use the information to benefit your present and future. So again, why did you file bankruptcy? If it was a medical bill, you might think that it's in the past and it won't happen again. Maybe, maybe not. Since you don't have a crystal ball, let's plan for medical bills in your future, just in case. The worst thing that can happen is you end up with extra money that you don't need for medical expenses. Even if they're not large bills, chances are you will have to pay out of pocket for some expenses at some point, so saving for it is a great way to go. I say medical, but personally, my medical expense fund is for medical, dental, and vision. Trust me, it gets used. Perhaps a car led you to bankruptcy. 
whether it was major repairs, accidents you couldn't pay a deductible for, or a car payment you could no longer afford. Cars are huge money suckers, but they make it much easier to get to work. So let's think through how we can avoid letting those bills get us again. Maybe you didn't have enough insurance and you need to consider beefing it up. Compare.com is a great place to shop for car insurance. Listen to my interview with Andrew Rose, president of Compare.com, to learn more about how to pick the right insurance. Remember, if you choose a lower monthly premium, that's probably going to mean a bigger deductible. So don't forget to save for that deductible. Otherwise, your insurance does you no good. Having an auto maintenance fund is a great idea, too. I use it to save for everything auto-related, from oil changes and new tires to transmissions. There is always something, so I sock away as much as I can. And don't forget your next car fund. At some point, you're going to need another car. The more money you can put away now, the less you'll have to finance later. That's a huge savings and a huge stress reliever. Maybe your bankruptcy came from using credit cards for fun things like vacations, dinners out with friends, concerts, whatever. If this is the case, it's very possible that you've gotten the wake-up call you needed to curb your spending. I'm guessing that while the vacation was fun, bankruptcy was not. Not to mention all the money spent on interest charges. But if you find it the least bit tempting to use a credit card for spending on things you can't afford, it's time to dump the credit card. Now, I know you may not have one right after bankruptcy, but the truth is it has become much easier to get them again much sooner than it used to be. So you need to protect yourself. Be honest. If you need time to change your spending habits, throw away those credit card offers. Don't even open the envelopes. Freeze your credit to make it harder for you and others to pull your credit and qualify you for new cards. I'm not saying you should never spend on anything fun. I think everyone needs a fun money category in their budget, but you need to keep your spending to only that amount. Otherwise, the additional money is going to have to come from some other category. And before you know it, there is nothing left in your medical or car fund when an unexpected expense comes up. So begins the vicious cycle all over again. So instead of using a credit card, use your debit card. But you might want to start with the cash envelope system. This made it much easier for me to stick to my budget when I first started, because if there was money in the envelope, I could spend. If not, I was out of luck. Compare this to guessing because I was using a debit card and not tracking my spending like I should have been, and cash worked much better. Use whatever method is best for you, but be honest. It's not about shame, but being realistic. If you can be honest with yourself about what works and what doesn't, it will make things way easier in the long run. Many times, it's not just one thing that led to bankruptcy. It's a series of events. And we can help prevent that domino effect by planning for the expenses we know will arise in our lives. It may seem like a lot to save for, but even if you start with only saving pennies in each category, it's going to add up. And it will help cover an expense even if it doesn't cover the whole thing. Some is better than none. And even if you spread your money into a 100 different savings categories, there's no law stating that you can't combine 99 of those categories to cover one emergency expense. What we're doing here is safeguarding ourselves as much as possible while still having some fun. A balanced budget makes for a peaceful financial life. And when you're at peace, it often leads to an exciting financial life because you can finally start thinking and planning for all the things you want in addition to all the things you need. 
If you want help creating your budget, let me know. I can take you step-by-step through the entire process or just help you get started, whatever you need. I can help take the fear out of your finances and help you lead a stress-free financial life. Visit the coaching page at sensiblechat.com for more information about my budget coaching services and contact me by phone or email when you're ready to get started. Usually we do this podcast twice a month, but I'm going to add in another episode next week because my guest, Anthony O'Neill, just released his new book, Debt-Free Degree, and I want to give you this information as soon as possible. This man is changing lives by giving parents and students the tools it takes to go to college debt-free. It is possible, and I can't wait to chat with him about all the great tools and ideas in his book. Join me when I speak with Ramsey personality Anthony O'Neill, author of Debt-Free Degree. In the meantime, visit anthonyoneal.com for more information about his programs and the book. You'll find a link for that plus all the other resources we talked about today in the show notes for this episode at sensiblechat.com. Thanks for listening and remember to leave a rating and review for this podcast. I would love to know what you think. Until next time, keep spending and saving the sensible way. That wraps up another episode of Sensible Chat with your host, Sensible Bobby. If you need help with your budget or want to share your thoughts, reach out to her through the contact page at sensiblechat.com. While you're there, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.